going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 2. You guys can go ahead and open up there. 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'll go ahead and tell you guys right off the top. This is going to have a little bit of a different feel to it this morning. This sermon, this message is going to feel a little bit different than what we typically do. Uh, not, not a lot, but a little more technical than what we typically get into here on a Sunday morning. But uh, just, a, just a heads up. Anybody here know what, uh, anybody here know what this is? Label maker. All right. So th- this is a label maker. I got a question. Is there anybody in here that loves their labels? Show of hands. Anybody in here that loves their labels? All right. There's a few of you in here. I knew there would be a few of you. I'm going to set this right here because it's going to get in my way. Uh, I knew there would be a, a few of you, and it's a safe place for you to admit that. It's fine. Um, it, it, there are just certain people that love to put labels all over Everything. Now, I am an a, I, I am a, a everything has its place type of person. Like there is a place the ketchup belongs in the fridge. There's a, a place that the uh, the eggs belong in the fridge. There's a place where things are supposed to be. Uh, unfortunately for me, my family does not share this conviction, uh, and it makes it uh, it makes it tough at times. Uh, but I'm not a label it kind of person. Uh, I have people I'm related to though, that, that are. Now, my dad can be a pretty type A type of person, and every now and then he'll get on a labeling kick, and he'll, uh, he'll label everything, all of his uh, drawers for tools and stuff like that. He's got labels on that, but uh, my mother-in-law is really the queen of labeling. Uh, it is, it is uh, her passion, I think. Uh, she puts labels on light switches, on drawers, on laundry baskets, you name it, and she'll get a label on it. Now, she's not much of one for uh, the, the fancy printed labels. She's more of a masking tape and Sharpie kind of a person. Uh, and she has labels on just about everything. I remember when Abby was born, uh, she came and spent a few days with us to help out. You, kinda, you guys kind of know how that goes. And by the time she left, all of our laundry baskets and drawers were labeled and ready to go. She had her system and she had fully implemented that system and labeled everything. Now, we didn't share the same system, so after she left, the labels were basically useless for us, but all over our laundry baskets, all over everything was, this is where darks go, this is where lights go, this is all of it, and it all makes uh, sense. And I know some of you guys understand exactly how that works. You love your labels and your label makers, and I get it. Labels are super helpful things. They clarify what goes in, what goes out, what's acceptable, what's not, what's approved, what is rejected. Labels make it very clear, black and white, this is what goes here and this is what doesn't go here. And while that might work for darks and lights on laundry baskets, it's not always that helpful when you're talking about people. And unfortunately, our world has become a world that loves to put people in categories, loves to put labels on people. Uh, sort us all out like laundry, uh, and then uh, really just kind of decide from there where we're supposed to be. D- Democrat or Republican, rich or poor, liberal or conservative, cat person or dog person. Like It's how we all get kind of sorted out into our different labels. So the problem is that our categories usually end up being, uh, or, or who we are as people, usually end up being far more nuanced and far more... Um, uh, far more kind of detailed 
than what categories allow for. So, so you, you, you get labeled something, but that, that thing doesn't always fit. For instance, what got you labeled as a Republican 10 to 15 years ago, you don't, you don't fit that category anymore. Even if you've not changed, you don't really fit because the category itself changed. Uh, and, and this kind of stuff happens all the time. Yet this is how we like to kind of sort people out. You may not change, but the labels do, and things just kind of constantly shift around us. But that is typically the grid for so many people in so many ways. We're going to put you in a category based on a handful of different things and forget the rest of the nuance. And while labels might be good shorthand for how to understand people, how to kind of work through and make decisions about people, they're often inaccurate, if not altogether false. One of the best things about us at Providence is that we are a non-denominational church, which means when you drive by, you don't see Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian up there on our sign, which means you can't really put us in a category. It's also one of the worst things about us because people have no idea what happens in here. So it makes it tough for people to say, well, what kind of a church are they? What is it that they do? And so uh, for for us, labels can, can be helpful and they can be harmful. But it ends up oftentimes being a lazy way of understanding people and relating to people. And the lazy way often creates very big problems for us whenever we go through things. So today's text that we are going to look at in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is one of the top label makers in all of Scripture. For many, it's a litmus test of whether you can be trusted with the Bible. For others, it's a litmus test of whether you can be trusted in the way that you relate to women. For some, it's the dividing line between conservative or liberal, complementarian or egalitarian. These may be words that mean something to you. They may mean nothing to you. Um, it's It's the label maker between trustworthy or compromised. It's my conviction that those labels have become lazy shorthand for people that don't really want to listen to others. And frankly, it's just not that helpful when it comes to this passage. So what I want to do this morning is the same thing that I said last week, the hard work of exegesis and hermeneutics, drawing out the text and applying the text, uh, and, then, and then seeing where we, where we get when we're at the end of this. And as I've, as I've done that with this passage in particular over the past few years, what I've seen is that even labels that in the past I have given to myself really haven't been all that helpful for me. And so I'll remind you, too, of what I said last week. Honestly, if you weren't here last week, it would do you a ton of good to go listen to last week's message uh, and then come back to this one again. But even when we disagree, it's it's okay for us to hold certain things in tension. So let's get to work and let's see where this takes us. And if you're not familiar with this passage here in 1 Timothy 2, it's going to take you about 30 seconds to figure out why I gave that long introduction to this text. All right? 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. I desire, that, uh, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair, gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So that's a doozy, right? Yeah? You just read that and it's just like, whoa, 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 what is going on here? 
There's at, there's at least half a dozen things in here that are controversial, if not downright offensive. Uh, and this has led many to completely dismiss Paul, the writer of this, this text here, to dismiss him as completely irrelevant, uh, even to say that they hate anything that Paul has to say, specifically because of eh, this passage and maybe two or three others, but, but really drawing from this passage. And so what in the world is Paul getting at here? What is it that Paul is saying whenever we read this stuff right here? What we've seen so far in, in, in this book is that his emphasis has really been on two different things. The idea that, that there really aren't different classes of people, Jew or Gentile, uh, Pharisee, barbarian, but instead that they all kind of belong to one big label, if you want, and that label is sinners. This has been Paul's kind of uh, thing he's been driving at so far in this text, and, then, and that's it. And we all fit in that one big bucket as sinners. And Paul has labored to make this point through his instruction to pray, to his teaching that God wants everyone to be saved. He's just banging this drum that everything kind of flattens out before Jesus. And then all of a sudden he shifts gears. He starts talking about men and women. Where in the world does this come from? How does he shift gears like this? Why, it, why, why does he sound so different in this this little paragraph right here, then he does the first chapter and a half of this book. Well, I'll tell you, I think he sounds different when read in isolation, but when you take what Paul is saying here in context, I think he's exactly in line with what he has been saying, that things flatten out before Jesus. I think Paul is not so much separating us out as men and women and who should do what, but he's trying to put men and women back into the same category, not separate them, but bring them back together. He's trying to remove the labels that separate us as men and women, not add labels based on gender. You say, where in the world is that, Pastor? Because it doesn't sound like that whenever we read this, whenever we go through this and just kind of take the plain reading of the text. And I get that. One of the first rules of hermeneutics, the, the science of applying Scripture and understanding Scripture, one of the first rules of hermeneutics is the plain text, the plain reading of the text is usually the best reading of the text. That's where we typically start. The problem is in this passage, the plain reading of the text fails us. Because we know right off the bat when we read through this, there are certain things in this text that say, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. Saved through childbearing? That doesn't sound like anything else Paul has said. In fact, it sounds very contradictory to things Paul is saying. What in the world is he talking about? So, so we know that we have to be able to take a few more things into account in order to understand this passage. The plain reading fails us because it fails to take into account who Paul is writing to and the context of what he has said so far. The plain reading simply causes all kinds of problems that would be flat out heresy if we were to just apply them exactly as it sounds. So what we're going to need to do is kind of work from the middle out here. And while we do that, I need to talk a little bit about how this passage has been used throughout church history. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you this as well. I think you should know this up front. The last five years or so, my own understanding of these verses has drastically changed. As I've wrestled with the teaching that I've heard, as I've, as I've wrestled over the, the reality of how these verses were applied, as I've kind of worked through some of my own confusion about some of these verses, I find myself in a place where I simply could not hold the interpretation and application of this verse as I would have if I were to preach this text five years ago. 
I feel like I need to take you on the journey that I have gone on over the course of the last five years. But if I did that, uh, not only would it take all of our time, it would take way more time than we have this morning. And I honestly wouldn't answer any questions for you if I just talked about me and my journey. But I do think that you should know that I have wrestled deeply and at times been almost consumed by trying to understand these verses. And in the end, honestly, I came to some, some conclusions that I did not anticipate whenever I kind of dove back into this text. And while I believe that, 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 that pastors and churches should be rooted in their beliefs and hold firm to their convictions, I also believe the motto of the, Reform, of the Reformation still applies today. Semper reformanda, which means always reforming. That as a church, we should always be moving forward, always rooted in Scripture, submissive to Scripture. That never goes away. Sola Scriptura is still there, always rooted in Scripture and submissive to Scripture, but acknowledging with humility that we don't always have it right, and we have to keep striving to be faithful to what Scripture teaches. Additionally, you should know that this passage has been central at at many very late night discussions with the elders and trying to sort out where we stood on some things that come out of this text. And you need to know that you should be very proud to call these men elders. They are good men, and they have asked tough questions. They have worked through some very difficult passages, and they have made some hard decisions. But they did so with grace, with patience, and with humility. My own sense in watching them is that they weren't afraid to ask hard questions. They weren't afraid to maybe change their minds if that's what was demanded. But they did all of those things firmly rooted and anchored in Scripture and not pushed at all by cultural winds. And you need to know that that has been a big part of what we've done over the last several years. In fact, I want to ask these guys just to stand up so you know who they are. We don't do this enough. They didn't know I was going to do this. But if you guys could stand up, elders. Tony, you too, you're on sabbatical, but stand up. Um, you got Tony, you got John, uh, you got David, and is Bob in here? Is Bob with the kids? Bob's with the kids. All right, so, um, all right, you guys can be seated. So they've all been a part of these conversations, and it has been impressive to watch how God has used them and worked through them. So let's get to work, and you're going to have to work on this one, all right? You're going to have to do the work with me as we go through this. And as I said, we'll start in the middle And then we're going to have to move out and be a little bit more technical as we go. So verse 11, let's just dive right in and rip the band-aid off, all right? Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. This text really is kind of the crux of the debate of the passage, although I don't think it's necessarily the crux of the passage. Um, The plain reading seems to be straight enough. Women, sit down and be quiet, and if you behave, you can learn a little bit. That's what it seems to be saying if you just read it straight off, right? Uh, Maybe there's a little bit nicer language, but that's been the general take on this verse uh, within the church throughout history. Not the only take, but it's kind of been the general take. It's resulted in an ugly history of devaluing and dismissing women's thoughts, insight, and gifting in the life of the church. Here's the thing I want to say, though. If Paul means what it at first sounds like, then we'd better do it. All right? Don't think that just because we, 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 we kind of like bristle at what it says, that that means that we shouldn't apply it. In fact, I would argue that if we bristle at what something says, that probably means we need to pay attention a little bit more, not dismiss it. All right? So if that's what it means, then we got to submit to it. 
Now, it's my conviction that, as I just said, I don't think that's what Paul means. Women, sit down, be quiet, and listen. Um, I don't think that's exactly what he means. Um, But if it were, then we submit to Scripture. That is the first core value of this church, the authority of Scripture, and it it is where we must we must be. But I don't think that's where we're going to go. So let's work through this. Let's start with verse 11. The idea that a woman was to learn would have been highly controversial in the first place that he would say that, especially to the Jewish members of Timothy's church here in Ephesus. Now we blow by that because we go right to the submissiveness part, but the fact that he instructed women to learn at all would have been uh, no small matter. That would have been perhaps even more controversial than what we focus on here. But it's important that we notice that and kind of talk about that. But then, in verse 12, Paul says, I do not permit. All right? So again, we're going to have to work through the details of this. He kind of says, I do not permit. That translation works, kind of. But we really lose some context going from Greek to English here. So let's work on this together. The word permit there, you can see some of this comes up. The word permit comes, uh, permit there is uh, epitrepo, permit or allow, all right? That's what it generally means, permit or allow. But there's two ways that we can kind of read this verb in the tense that it's in. Present, active, indicative. Now you English teachers, maybe we got some Greek scholars in here, you know what that means, um, I'm not an English major, nor am I a Greek scholar, but I can tell you that the idea, whenever it says that, it's a present, it's a, a, a present command. It's happening in the moment. And so you could read this as, I do not presently allow, or you could read this as, I do not allow right now with an application that is ongoing. So it could be read as, I do not allow, and I mean this, I don't allow it now, and I don't allow it for forever. Or you could read it as, I am not allowing right now, which is what the text actually says. In order to get to the, I do not allow and I never allow, we have to kind of supply that information that's not there. It doesn't mean it's not a, it's not a proper translation. It means we have to supply a little bit more in, our, in the way we translate the word in order to get there. So it can be like this. There's a, there's a field behind our house that gets mowed a couple times a year. Now, I could say, I do not let my kids play in that field and mean that I never allow them to play in that field. Or I could be referring to when the tractor is out there and say, I don't allow them to play in that field. And what I mean is, I don't allow them to play in that field while the tractor is there. And what I mean is, I don't want them to get run over by the tractor, right? I would say it basically the same way. In the Greek, you'd you'd likely say that the same way. So which one does Paul have in view here? And I'll just tell you, it's not clear. It is not clear, but in order for his command to have an ongoing application for all time, as I said, we have to supply that meaning just a little bit. Paul doesn't give it to us. And it doesn't mean it's not his goal, but he never says that directly. I favor the second that what Paul is doing in this place is he is giving a command saying, I am not presently allowing a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Both, you, can, you could go with either. I favor the second one because I think the context fits a little bit better, which I will try to show in just a minute. So for now, let's change it from I do not permit to I do not allow a woman to teach presently. 
And then it says, teach or exercise authority. Now, the word authority here is notoriously hard word to understand. There are a lot of ways that Paul could have talked about authority and meant good, healthy, God-ordained leadership or authority. There's a lot of ways that he could have said that. He doesn't use any of those words. In fact, the word that he uses is nowhere else in the New Testament. The word is authentane. And so we have to go to sources outside of Scripture to figure out what in the world he's saying here whenever he uses that word. Why doesn't Paul go with a word that means healthy leadership, good leadership, godly leadership? Why doesn't he use any of those things? He uses this word, authentane, that means domineering leadership. Very specifically, a type of leadership that's kind of self-exalting, right? And so what he means here is, I don't permit or allow a woman to teach or have domineering, abusive, self-exalting authority over a man. So then you've got to ask the question, why does Paul feel compelled to say that now? What is it that, he, that, that gets him to this place? All right, so there's a third question that we have to look at whenever Paul says, a woman. And again, this is not clear in the text. It doesn't tell us specifically. Is it that he has one specific woman in mind when he says a woman? So it would basically be the woman to stand and teach? Or does he mean all women? He's not clear here. It could be, I I could be convinced either way on this one. That he's talking about one specific woman or that he has all women in view. Now, I think he probably has all women in view because of what comes next as we keep on going. I told you, this is a little bit technical. Y'all are going to have to keep, keep up with me here. You see, it would be hard if Paul had just written these verses with no context. It would be hard for us to understand. We'd ask, Paul, why did you give this command? What is your reasoning here? What's the logic behind this? Are you sexist? Is it something else that, that, that is there that has made you make this rule? It just so happens that Paul gives us his reasoning for why he creates this rule, this prohibition, which is both helpful and very frustrating all at the same time. So verse 13, he says, For, so the four tells us that Paul is giving a reason, Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So he's giving this reason, and the reason that he gives for this prohibition is in the act of creation. This is why I think Paul has all women in view here, not one specific woman, because I think, I think when he references creation, that makes it a much bigger conversation than just one woman that he is talking about there. It's not just one rogue woman, but something in the way that we are created, in the order that we were created, that grounds his reasoning. And then something in the fall that further makes his point. But what is it about creation and the fall? So he says, creation and the fall are the reason that I have this prohibition. But what is it that causes Paul to make his prohibition? He doesn't tell us, which is super frustrating. So he gives us some more context, but he doesn't give us all the context. For centuries This verse has been used to teach a variety of things about women that have absolutely crushed them. It has robbed women of their dignity, of their spiritual authority, of their spiritual respectability. The argument goes that Paul uh, asserts women uh, and and, and, and that that women shouldn't teach and that women shouldn't be a, a part of this 
uh, whenever he, he goes after them because of the fall. That a woman can't teach a man because look what happened the last time or the first time that a woman decided to teach a man. Ruined everything for everybody. And so women can't be trusted. Women are gullible. They got deceived. Women shouldn't be in this place. The reason that we're in a mess is because of a woman. Now, there's a lot of reasons that that is simply wrong. For one, this is the same blame shifting that Adam does in the garden that God holds him to account for. When God seeks him out after the fall and calls him out for his sin, his response is, don't blame me, you gave me the woman. So Adam says, if anybody's at fault, God, it's you and that woman that you gave me, right? This is the same thing that Adam does. So Adam shifts the blame on Eve and God, and God rebukes him for this blame shifting and then holds him to account and puts the blame back on him. Furthermore, God curses both Adam and Eve, not one, but both, and holds them both responsible for the fall. So it wouldn't make any sense for Paul simply to hold one person accountable for the fall here, right? That would go against the text of Genesis chapter 3. If it, and, and on top of that, in Romans chapter 5, if anything, Paul lays the, the, the fall of humanity and the fall of humankind at the feet of Adam, not at Eve. And he goes and he, he, he says that, it, you know, in, in one man we all sin, talking about Adam, and he, he, he sees Adam as kind of the representative head for all of humanity, not Eve. So if, if you're going to interpret this text as women are gullible and got deceived and so women shouldn't teach at all, you go against Paul's teaching in Romans 5 and you go against Genesis chapter 3. It doesn't make sense to apply it that way. For centuries, this passage was used to assert the moral and mental superiority of men over women. Friends, whatever this passage means, wherever you come down on it, it sure isn't that men are morally superior to women. And we cannot hold that interpretation at all. It is nothing less than an attempt to undercut women, and it's rooted in a poor understanding of Scripture, nature, creation, and frankly, a complete lack of love for women. So what is Paul getting at here? We've been talking for a while and we still don't have any answers yet. So what is Paul getting at? He gives us a reason, and we feel like we're closer to understanding things, but we still don't know Paul's logic. We still don't know how this works in his head to get to this place. So this is where we get to verse 15, which I think is the key to unlocking this passage, which is a weird thing to say because it's one of the most obscure things in all the Bible. So verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, it seems really weird to say that the key to unlocking this entire passage comes from this verse that nobody knows what it means because it's a really hard verse to understand. Again, the plain reading here fails us. We have to do more work to figure out what is going on. We know elsewhere, from elsewhere in Scripture that, that childbirth doesn't save anyone. No action like that saves anyone. There's all kinds of problems with that interpretation, from, from those that remain single to those that simply uh, can't conceive and don't have children to just the basic understanding of how salvation works from all over the New Testament uh, and the fact that it's rooted in faith, not in whether or not you have a child or not. It just doesn't make any sense. 
One scholar said that he found dozens of understandings of this verse, and he could boil those down into about six or seven categories. It's like, are you kidding me? There's seven general categories with nuances of all of those things on how to understand this one verse. So it seems like an odd verse to be our key. But it's in this verse that I believe Paul tips his hand just a little bit about what is driving his thinking. Because you have to ask the question, why does Paul bring up creation, the fall, and childbirth? What did those three things, those are the three things that ground his reasoning. So what did those three things have in common that would help us understand this passage? The only answer that I think makes sense of those three things without trying to stretch our exegesis and, uh, and, and help us stay consistent in, in this passage is that Paul is trying to instruct Timothy on how to plant a church in Ephesus. And specifically, how to plant a church in a culture that views worship through the lens of the worship of Artemis. Now, if you'll remember all the way back to the beginning of when we started this, so this is several weeks ago, Artemis, the worship of Artemis dominated the city of Ephesus. It dominated their culture, it dominated their economy, it dominated everything about it. That was their identity, was the worship of Artemis, right? It's one of the seven wonders of the world, the temple of Artemis that was there. Every, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It is everything to him. So I'm going to need you to follow along with me here just a little bit. In order to know Artemis, you have to know, um, you, you have to know the myth and the story that the Ephesian people knew her by. Now, Artemis is the daughter of Zeus and, and Leto and the twin sister of Apollo. Now, I know we, we recognize all these things as myths, but make no mistake, this is how their worldview was formed by these myths, Okay? So she was the, she's the daughter of, of Zeus and Leto and the twin sister of Apollo. And the story goes that when her mother was giving birth to her and to her brother Apollo, Artemis was born first with no issue. Several days later, I think nine days is the number, uh, her mother was still in labor trying to uh, give birth to her twin brother Apollo. And then according to the myth, the way that this works is that Artemis then turned to her mother and essentially became the midwife for her mother and helped Apollo to be born. Okay? This is the story of Artemis. And while that sounds like, oh my gosh, what in the world? They actually believe that this kind of stuff happened? This is what formed their worldview in Ephesus. All right? And there's some implications that come from that little story. One... You prayed to Artemis for protection when? During childbirth. She was known as the goddess of birth or the goddess of childbirth. Because Artemis had saved her own mother, you certainly would go and pray to her for protection dur during labor and delivery. It's just what you did in the city. One doesn't have to strain hard to see that Christians might stop by the temple of Artemis to light a candle and pray that their delivery would go well if they were pregnant on the way to church that, that Paul and Timothy were planting. Because it's just what you did. Can you imagine if you had grown up your whole life in fear of dying in childbirth, which would have been a common occurrence, you'd grown up your whole life, and what you were told was, if you don't go light that candle at the temple of Artemis, you're going to die. And then, all of a sudden, this Christian message shows up, and it's like, well, yeah, sure, I believe in Jesus, but I'm not, I'm not going to stop lighting that candle because I'm going to die. 
right? So that's exactly how that would have played out. Women would have been terrified not to do that. The second thing that this little creation story gives us is it certified the superiority of women to men. Because Artemis was born with no issue, and Apollo never would have been born without the help of Artemis, women were clearly superior to men. They were born first, and, they, and men wouldn't have, like Apollo wouldn't even been around if Artemis hadn't stepped in to help. So women were superior to men in every fashion. In fact, the story of Artemis, Artemis goes by another name later on in Roman cultures. Anybody know what that name is? Diana, right? Does anybody know where uh, a, 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 a god named Diana later, play, later, later shows up in our pop culture? Wonder Woman. This, this story later morphs into Wonder Woman. So that gives you an idea of what we're talking about when we talk about women being in power, right? Now that, that, that story hadn't kind of taken root at that point, but that's the, that's the direction, the trajectory where it was heading. So women were superior to men because they had been born first and because they had the, 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 the moral kind of uh, account where they had, they had given birth, helped give birth to, the, to their brother. And then the third thing is the worship at the temple of Artemis was dedicated to a woman, led by women priests, and served by male emasculated eunuchs. Okay, that's what the worship of the temple of Artemis would have looked like. And everyone in the city would have known this. Everyone would have known that that's what it looked like. So now with all that context, here's what I think Paul is trying to do. Let's put all of this together. Paul is trying to refute a creation narrative in the city of Ephesus that caused women to domineer men, to exalt themselves, and to draw all women even the Christian women, into some measure self-exaltation and praying to Artemis for safety. Paul wants to correct all of these things because what's his goal that we've seen so far? Flatten things out before Jesus. No hierarchy of women over men. Flatten things out before Jesus. And I think that's what he's trying to do. So he says, don't go to Artemis for salvation in childbirth. You're not saved by her. You're saved, and the word that he uses here is the same word we would use for spiritual salvation, not physical salvation. You're saved by the way God calls us to live as Christians, to continue in faith, love, and holiness. Furthermore, women aren't superior to men because men were formed first, and a woman ate the first bite. So they can't take the superiority of preeminence, and they can't take the superiority of, mor of morality because they fell too. It's all flattened out. I think this is what Paul is doing here. So under no circumstances should you women be strutting around the city of Ephesus like you're better than men. It doesn't hold up to the true story of creation. From Genesis, your stories are myths and genealogies. Does that ring any bells? 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. To me, that sounds like a direct reference to Artemis. Myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. You see, your stories give you meaning. 
The stories that they told in Ephesus form their worldview. And the stories that we tell that come out of Scripture frame our worldview and how we apply certain things. And what Paul is saying is your stories have formed a bad worldview. Remember what I told you. They suffered from two things in Ephesus. Bad theology and bad storytelling. And I think what Paul is saying is your stories have given you the wrong view. The wrong view of men, the wrong view of women, the wrong view of worshiping God, even the wrong view of what saves you. So because these stories have so infected your culture, we've got to put a stop to all of that here in Ephesus. We've got to prevent a woman from teaching there because we look, sound, and act just like the temple. So look with me in verse 8. Because in verse 8, he says, in fact, while you have women in charge, while you have uh, women uh, leading as priests and domineering the men next door, here's what I want it to look like in your church, Timothy. I want it to look very different than that church across the street, that giant thing. They said that the temple of Artemis is four times the size of the Parthenon. That giant temple that dominates your city across the street, the church that meets in your house, Timothy, the church that meets in whoever's house there, Timothy, it needs to look different. And here's what it needs to look like. I desire that, this is verse 8, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves with, with respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So why does Paul say that? Because he wants the worship in the church of God to look different than the church of Artemis. He wants the women to look different, to live different, to stop trying to domineer men because they've got it all wrong. You see, whenever the women would go to the worship at the temple of Artemis, the women would kind of strut their stuff into the temple because they were the superior ones. It was an event to go to the worship of Artemis and they would braid their hairs and they would their hair and they would put on all the gold and they put on all the stuff because they wanted to look good whenever they showed up. Because they were the ones in charge and they wanted to strut their power and their authority. Paul says, No, you've got it all wrong. Stop getting all dressed up and wearing that stuff because you look just like the temple across the street. Now that sounds a lot more like the Paul we've heard for heard from so far in First Timothy. Flattening things out, not creating hierarchies. Brings all of us level before Jesus. He does it the same way that he's been doing it the whole time. Removing one more wall of hostility so that we can worship Jesus together. Before it was Pharisees and Gentiles, now he's saying men and women. He's not trying to separate us, he's trying to bring us back together. So how does this apply today? We have to make sure that we don't simply mirror the culture around us, but that our worship is distinctly and clearly rooted in a deeper, better story. We must root our lives in the true stories. And I think that's what Paul models for us here. You know, this is another thing to consider. This is a bit of an argument from silence, so I don't think that you can, we can make grand conclusions from this. But think about this. Timothy had been Paul's right-hand man in all kinds of contexts. All kinds of different churches. Why would Paul feel the need to give a very specific command about women not teaching? Because 
if women weren't allowed to teach at all, if they weren't allowed to be in that place, Timothy would have already heard that from Paul. He wouldn't need Paul to tell him that. Paul has to tell him that in this specific case because this is Timothy in charge in the church at Ephesus. And so what Paul's command is here, I believe, a temporary command given to the women at Ephesus in order to make the church look different than the temple across the street. We must root our lives in truer and better stories. So all of Scripture must be our guide, not just three or four verses. So for us at Providence, what this means is that we have no issue with women teaching. In fact, I firmly believe that because women have been silenced for so long, the church as a whole has missed out on some tremendous godly instruction and perspectives that are simply lacking in the church. We've simply never been able to listen to that voice or that perspective because the voice wasn't allowed. And we're so much worse off for it. I do not believe that men and women are the same. I do not believe that we are interchangeable. Do not hear me saying that. In fact, it's because I believe that men and women are distinctly different, that we benefit from hearing from women. Not just men. Because the way we approach and the way we see things, we're all different as individuals, but I also think we're different in men, as men and women. We need to hear from women more. So for us as elders, as we've worked through this and as we've talked through this, what we want to make clear is that this is where we land as a church. And again, I think we can hold different, and I don't, want to, I don't want to be one of those people that says, if this isn't where you land, then you don't believe in Scripture. I think that there's, there's probably a few different ways to understand this passage that, are, that, that remain faithful to the same approach to Scripture uh, that lead to very different conclusions for each church. It's just, the reality is, it's a really hard text. But this is where we land as a church. It is the position of Providence Church that men and women are gifted and equipped by the Spirit to exercise all spiritual gifts, including teaching, leading, and shepherding under the guidance and oversight of the elders. Additionally, the church is strengthened when we hear clear, compelling teaching and when we receive humble, Christ-exalting care from both men and women. We, as elders, and as a church, are committed to the, the empowering and the flourishing of both men and women as leaders and teachers under the guidance and oversight of the elders. As elders, we, we not only believe it's okay for women to stand up and preach and teach us, it's better for us all when that happens. So God willing, that will happen here one day. We don't have any like immediate plans. It's not like, all right, next week. Come back for the, the women teaching. It's not the way that that's going to work, right? But I just want you to know that this is, this is where we land and where we are as a church. And there's a ton of questions that come along with this. Next week, we'll answer a few of those questions because Paul's immediately going to shift into talking about elders and deacons. So this is far from all we can or will say on this topic. But I want to leave you with this. I don't know what label you want to put on me or what label you want to put on this church or what, we, what all we've said here this morning, I, I'm not sure there's a good category for where we stand. There's a good label for us, but in all honesty, I don't really care. I don't really care all that much what our label is as a church, other than this. We want to make sure that we submit to the leading and the instruction of Scripture. Honor men and women alike, and show the grace, mercy, and supremacy of Christ. 
So whatever that label is, that's us. Any other label you want to put on us, that's your call. But I'm going to bet it probably doesn't fit as well as you would think. Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we work through this difficult text, I do pray for humility and for um, just a spirit of, 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 of willingness to, to learn and to hear and to listen and to grow. I thank you for these men that we have that serve us as elders. I thank you for the way they have worked and they have served. I thank you for your word. I thank you for what I believe is the heart that Paul has here, not to, not to diminish women or to take women down, but instead to flatten us all out and to highlight the common grace that we all have and the cross. And so, Father, I pray that whatever comes out of this sermon, whatever comes out of this text, that the primary thing would not be some uh, doctrinal position of argument and disagreement, but instead it would be the reality that before Jesus we all have the same problem. We are all sinners. And we all desperately need your grace. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.